Sheriff Kirk held a press conference announcing the breakthrough in the Freeman case. He announced that authorities were almost certain that James Otto Earhart had killed Ginger. He explained the forensic genealogy process and how it zeroed in on Earhart. But as listeners know by now, a name in a forensic genealogy report is not enough to close a case. But the BCSO was ecstatic when they got Earhart's name because it was a name they knew. James Otto Earhart had been convicted in May 1987 for the murder of nine-year-old Candy Kirtland. The state of Texas executed Earhart on August 11, 1999. But no DNA sample had ever been collected or analyzed from Earhart. He had refused to give a DNA sample in the entire 11-year period he spent on death row. So, shockingly, his DNA was not in CODIS. That era, the mid-1980s to mid-90s, preceded the statutes requiring convicted violent felons to submit DNA. Now, it can be taken by force if necessary. But back then, if the guy said no, they had to leave it be. It's mind-boggling to me that a child murderer could refuse to submit a DNA sample as recently as the mid-90s, but that was the case in many states. So anyway, Earhart was dead, and they didn't have his DNA for comparison to any unknown samples in any case. In early 2017, having been at work on the case for months without making much progress, Texas Ranger Josh Ray, working with BCSO investigator Kenny Elliott, started making a list of previously uninvestigated potential suspects in the Freeman case. This was literally a kitchen sink list. Every bad guy in the state who had not ever been looked at was on it. And Earhart made their list after Sheriff Kirk suggested he be on it because he had lived in Bryan at the time of Ginger's murder, he was a known killer, and younger photos of him resembled the snapshot image. Committed to a thorough investigation of the names on the list, in April 2017, Ranger Ray and Investigator Elliot tracked down Earhart's still-living son in Nagadocious and asked him for a DNA sample. He voluntarily gave them one. They submitted it to the Texas Department of Public Safety Crime Lab in Austin, and there it sat. Earhart was just one of the names on the back burner suspect list, and Elliot and Ray continued to run down others. They had no reason to believe that Earhart was their guy any more than any of the other bad guys on the list, and there was no reason to rush the Texas Crime Lab's testing of Earhart's son's sample. The Crime Lab was running as much as a year behind on testing. Time passed. Then, in June 2018, Parabon's report named James Otto Earhart as the likely killer. That name sure rang a bell. Josh Ray and Kenny Elliott knew they had gotten a voluntary sample from his son just 14 months earlier. And this was when Ranger Ray realized that the crime lab might need a little push to test the DNA sample obtained from Earhart's son against the sample in the Freeman case. He called up the crime lab on June 20, 2018, and by 7.30 a.m. the next day, he had his results. The YSTR testing of Earhart's son's profile and the unknown suspect's profile indicated a match of paternal lineage and a likely parent-child relationship. In other words, the son's father, James Otto Earhart, was the killer. Now, I said that at the press conference, Sheriff Kirk announced that they were almost certain Earhart was the killer. This was because, as listeners are aware, the match between the son's DNA and the suspect's DNA was only 50%. It was a parent-child match— but it was not a 100% match because, of course, the son inherited 50% of his DNA from his mother. The paternal relationship was certainly convincing evidence of Earhart's guilt, Kirk pointed out. 
But there was only one way to 100% confirm that James Otto Earhart was the killer, and that was to dig him up. As he spoke, said the sheriff, they were working on obtaining the appropriate search warrants. Before he concluded, Sheriff Kirk talked about the impact this case had had on so many in the community, the real estate world, among the Freeman family and friends, and among members of law enforcement. He recalled that he was a very green deputy, nearly fresh out of the academy, when he was called in to shoot the crime scene photos because he had experience in photography. It was his first murder. He was ecstatic when it was solved, he said. He was the only member of law enforcement who originally worked the case who was still with the BCSO, and he had been determined to see it through. The case changed the way realtors worked locally, he said. They started to show houses in tandem and obtain ID from their clients, all because of Ginger. Kirk said that he broke the news to the Freeman children, Brad and Betsy, who were now grown and had families of their own. He said they were taken aback by the news and relieved. Sadly, Charles was no longer alive to see the resolution of his wife's murder. He had died in 2007, never knowing what happened to her on that fateful day in 1981. Sheriff Kirk also thanked a lot of people because, he said, a lot of people were involved in this case and never gave up on it. Specifically, he mentioned the Texas Rangers and all the individual Rangers, Bob Connell, Frank Malinek, and Josh Ray, who had helped out on the case over the years. He thanked long-retired BCSO investigator Dick Gulledge, who thought to bag Ginger's hands and collect the clippings at autopsy. He was personally responsible for packing them up and storing them in evidence safely until the time came when new DNA analysis was ready for them. That single effort gave authorities the evidence they needed to solve this case. As for investigator Kenny Elliott, he received a special recognition award for his long-term dedication to the case. Sheriff Kirk concluded by saying, quote, The one regret I have is that we weren't able to put handcuffs on the suspect and prosecute him for the vicious killing of Virginia Freeman. At 7.45 a.m. on June 27, 2018, Brazos County investigators, Huntsville PD, and Texas Ranger Josh Ray arrived at the Blackjack Cemetery in Huntsville, Texas. They were armed with a bobcat, a saw, and a search warrant that authorized them to dig up the grave of James Otto Earhart, open his casket, and collect a biological sample from his remains. Dr. Harold Gill King, professor and director of the Institute of Forensic Anthropology at the University of North Texas, was tasked with collecting four samples. The DNA was to be analyzed for comparison against the DNA of the killer in the Freeman case, and also was to be entered into CODIS to see if any other unsolved crimes were attributable to Earhart. The DNA match provided by Earhart's son gave investigators the probable cause they needed to dig Earhart up. I was kind of shocked when I watched the video of this exhumation and saw that it was all done out in the open. No tent, no privacy screen, nothing. A TV news crew filmed the whole affair. They didn't show Earhart's body in the box, but they did show a very large dark brown femur bone in a white plastic container being carried over to a table where a circular saw was used to cut into it. Dr. Gil King, looking very Indiana Jones-ish with a trim white beard, safari hat, and baggy khakis, was the one wielding the surgical saw. He removed four slices of the bone, and then Texas Ranger Josh Ray took the remaining bone back to the grave, where he placed it back into the casket. The grave was closed back up. The whole thing took less than 90 minutes. Josh Ray told me that Earhart had been buried in a cheap box typical with executed felons in the 90s. The box was deteriorated, and when they opened it, they could see only rotten clothing and bones. 
Dr. Gil King reached into the holy genes and pulled the femur bone right out. It was that simple. To no one's surprise, the DNA testing confirmed it. Earhart's DNA profile was a match for the DNA obtained from under Virginia Freeman's fingernails. James Otto Earhart had killed Virginia Freeman all those years ago, six years before the murder for which he was executed. Let's talk about the Kirtland case. On May 12, 1987, nine-year-old Candy Kirtland got off the school bus on a warm Tuesday afternoon. Candy lived in Bryan, Texas with her father, John, and stepmother, Ruth Ann. The bus dropped her at 3.40 p.m. at Deer Trail and Gabbard Road, just steps from her front door at 3210 Deer Trail. No one else got off with her at the bus stop. A neighbor mowing his lawn saw her walking toward her house, and they waved at each other. What's strange is that Candy made it into the house. Her father was at work, and her stepmom had taken Candy's brother to an eye doctor appointment. Candy had been told to let herself into the house and wait. Both parents arrived home around 4 p.m. When they did, they found Candy's house key on the stove and her school books on the porch, but no Candy. She was nowhere to be seen. She had not contacted her mom, Jan, who lived in Houston. Kirtland's called the Bryan police after two hours had elapsed without any sign of Candy. Police released some information gathered from witnesses. A large white man, age 40-ish, estimated weight 350 pounds, was seen by at least five neighbors in the area that day, just two hours before Candy got off the bus. He was described as huge, unshaven, and reeking to high heaven from B.O. Police learned that the same man had come to the Kirtland's home the week before to discuss the purchase of a paint gun the family was advertising for sale. Candy's stepmom, Ruth Ann, told police the would-be purchaser had ogled Candy at the time. On the 12th, the neighbors reported that the same large man came back on Tuesday and asked residents of nearby homes how to contact the Kirtlands. The guy was driving a tan, dented, late-model sedan, which was seen parked outside the Kirtland home at the time when Candy would have gotten off the bus. Neighbor Charlene Kansky reported seeing Candy talking to an obese man in the sedan who had pulled into the Kirtland driveway. A sketch of the suspect was circulated, and he was quickly recognized and identified by several people. This guy was clearly not very stealthy. He drew attention to himself by talking to multiple neighbors, he was unkempt and unsightly, and he lived right there in the same town as his victim. He was missing, but investigators searched the house where he lived with his mother, Ida Mae Sprayberry, after she gave permission. Then they returned with a May 19th search warrant. Among Earhart's possessions, they found the Kirtland's address on a piece of paper and three newspaper clippings about Candy's disappearance. It took investigators a week to track him down. They arrested him at 2 a.m. in the Sam Houston National Forest near Lake Stubblefield, where he was known to camp. Sure enough, he was there asleep in his car. Just as described by the witnesses, Earhart was more than 350 pounds with a 56-inch waist, was 44 years old, and drove a beat-up beige Impala. He had traded the Impala for an Oldsmobile Cutlass at a used car dealer right before going on the lam. Police found a loaded 22 caliber pistol in the front seat, but Earhart was very cooperative. He told deputies that he knew they were looking for him because he watched the news, but he said to reporters, I didn't do it. But once at the station, he admitted to Bryan police and FBI agents that Candy was in his car on May 12th, the day she was last seen. He told them he drove her to a nearby intersection and dropped her off. And he admitted speaking with two neighbors who had picked him out of a photo lineup. 
He said when he heard that Candy was missing, he panicked, believing her disappearance would be pinned on him since he could be tied to the area. So he traded in his car and fled. On this same day, May 26th, police found a child's body on a dirt road in a heavily wooded area off Via Maria Road in Bryan. They were led to the spot by a local who had been disturbed on his regular walks in the area by a terrible smell. When he followed his nose, he came to a little bundle in the bushes under some rags and cardboard and a white sneaker sticking out. He ran and called police. The body was, of course, Candy's. The little girl had her arms bound behind her with electrical cord, and she had been shot in the head with a Remington twenty-two caliber bullet. She was still wearing the same turquoise shorts, white shirt, tennis shoes, and earrings she had worn to school. She had died on the same day she was abducted, or that night. The gun found in Earhart's car was a twenty-two, and it had one spent shell under the hammer. He was charged with capital murder and pled not guilty. In a strange coincidence, one of the Bryan police officers who responded to the scene and first observed Candy's body was named Lee Freeman, the same last name as Ginger, another victim of Earhart's, who would not be known for decades. Freeman went on to become Bryan police chief. He told the Eagle, quote, Tears came to our eyes when we went into the woods and saw the body. There was always this hope that we would find her alive. I'm not going to go into too much detail about the trial. It was a pretty open and shut case against Earhart for Candy's murder. For example, his own uncle had been the one to call in Earhart's name to police for the Kirtland murder. After Earhart showed up at the uncle's house right after the murder with a gun, an electrical cord, and a bloody blanket in his truck. Earhart's attorney did his best, moving to suppress the recorded statement in which Earhart admitted driving Candy in his car on the grounds that Earhart was sleep-deprived after living in his car and was suggestible and manipulated by police. This motion was denied, but a request for a change of venue was granted. At the trial, two witnesses testified about seeing Earhart at the spot where Candy's body was found, and one of them saw him in the company of a little girl. He was also linked to the Kirtland's neighborhood. Here's an excerpt from The Eagle. Quote, through three days of the defendant's capital murder trial, other witnesses have said an obese, foul-smelling man they identify as Earhart had wandered about Westwood Estates for several hours on May 12, 1987. The neighbor testified about seeing him talking to Candy, and the school bus driver testified that when Candy got off the bus, a 1970s Chevy sedan was parked outside the house. The prosecutor told the jury that Candy was an easy target. Notes had been found in her room that she was sad that she didn't have more friends. I thought my heart would break when I read that. Earhart picked exactly the right target, a little girl who was friendly, outgoing, and lonely. At the trial, a psychiatrist testified that Earhart was a borderline psychopath who masked feelings of inadequacy and inferiority. Anyway, the gun in Earhart's car was found to have blood spatter on it, as were three shirts in his possession— at least one of the shirts had blood on the sleeve that did not belong to Earhart and was consistent with Candy's blood type. But because Candy was so decomposed, it could not be determined definitively that the blood was hers. Prosecutors maintained that Candy was shot with the twenty-two found in Earhart's car, and the spatter was blowback from the shot. The bullet taken from Candy's skull was too damaged for ballistics comparison, but tests conducted by the FBI showed that the slug that killed Candy contained identical metallic components as two bullets that were found in the gun and three found in Earhart's home. The electrical cord binding Candy was identical to several cords found in Earhart's home as well. Earhart was a junk dealer who made money by repairing and reselling used appliances, so electrical cord was readily available to him. 
The used car dealer testified about accepting a 1976 tan Chevy Impala as a trade-in for the Cutlass he had sold to a heavyset man using the name George Stevens, whom he identified as Earhart. The Impala was collected from the used car lot and found to have human blood on the front passenger door panel. As for the Cutlass, when Earhart was arrested, he was living out of it. FBI agent Joe McGinnis testified that it smelled so toxic he had to wear a mask when searching it. The floorboards under the driver's seat were submerged under a half inch of urine. A wad of used TP was on the front seat. Beer cans littered the interior. Family members testified that Earhart was known to drink more than a case of beer a day and to scrounge food from local dumpsters. None of this personal hygiene stuff is evidence of his guilt, obviously, but it sure is gross. Pictures of this guy upon his arrest show a jowly slob in stained clothing straining at the seams, bedhead, squinty eyes, and a scowl on his face. The defense attorney presented witnesses who said they saw Candy at the mall, alive and well, and others who tried to paint Candy as a victim of a cult, but the jury didn't buy any of this. They took only three hours of deliberation to find Earhart guilty. In phase two of the trial, the jury voted to put Earhart to death, finding that he had killed Candy deliberately and he was a danger to society. Earhart's sister Johnny Ruth Johnson and his cousin Sharon Brown testified in the sentencing phase that he had attacked them in 1981, trying to strangle each of them. That's interesting because that's the same year that Ginger Freeman was murdered by strangulation. Earhart sobbed aloud during this part of the testimony. Drama ran high overall. Johnny Ruth collapsed after testifying about being attacked. Sharon ran from the courtroom overcome with tears. Another Earhart relative tried to attack a TV news reporter. Several family members cried openly at the jury decision. Earhart sat in numb disbelief, showing little emotion. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat mother of three, and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. Earhart sat on death row for 11 years. As you know, death penalty cases are often extremely drawn out as they make their way through the appeals process. Here's a brief synopsis of the post-conviction proceedings in this case. Earhart filed an appeal of right to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, which affirmed the guilty verdict and denied a rehearing. The U.S. Supreme Court then granted his petition for writ of certiorari, which is a voluntary review of the case by a higher court, and remanded the case to the Court of Criminal Appeals for reconsideration. Again, the appeals court upheld the verdict. A second cert petition to the U.S. Supreme Court was denied. The trial court scheduled Earhart's execution for February 7, 1995, but Earhart initiated federal habeas corpus proceedings in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Texas, seeking a stay of execution and new counsel because he said the original one was ineffective. For those of you who don't know, habeas corpus just means that the defendant is challenging the legality of his imprisonment and demanding to be heard in court. Earhart's motion was granted and his execution was stayed just five days before it was scheduled, but the forthcoming habeas corpus petition was denied after review. Basically, he didn't have cause to appeal. The denial was upheld by both the Federal Appeals Court and the U.S. Supreme Court. Earhart turned back to the Texas state courts, seeking habeas relief there, which was also denied. 
All of this took four more years. By now, it was summer 1999, and Earhart's conviction was imminent. Just hours before his execution, Earhart's attorneys faxed a 32-page petition to the U.S. Supreme Court. It stated that he told his trial attorney that the gun accidentally went off when Candy kicked it. The Supreme Court, obviously, refused to step in. James Otto Earhart died by lethal injection at 6.24 p.m. on August 11, 1999. It took 10 minutes for him to die. Earhart refused to say any last words. The execution was attended by Candy's parents, Joe and Jan, and her sister and brother. Jan Brown, Candy's mom, told the Eagle that she was an opponent of the death penalty, but had made peace with the resolution of her daughter's case. She said she cried uncontrollably after the execution. Quote, I was unprepared for my own reaction. My own reaction was shock. The shock of both seeing the man die in front of me, as well as it brought back what it must have been like for my daughter, dying alone out in the wooded area and being covered up by garbage. The contrast was just horrendous. Police and prosecutors came to believe that Earhart had deliberately returned to the Kirtland home in hopes of getting to Candy, whom he had seen the previous week during his visit to the home about the paint gun. They discovered that on the morning of the abduction, Earhart had responded to an ad in Candy's neighborhood looking for homes for some kittens. He told the kitten owner that he wanted a pet for his daughter, but he was divorced and had no daughters. It was thought that perhaps he wanted a kitten to lure Candy. Okay, so that's the sordid saga of the Candy Kirtland murder and the capital punishment of her killer. What else do we know about Earhart? Well, after 2018 investigators found out that he also killed Virginia Freeman, they dug into Earhart to try to get some context for who he was and what was going on in his life in 1981. Earhart was born on April 29, 1943, in Huntsville, Texas. He came from a big family with lots of cousins who all lived in the Bryan area. You'll recall that his cousin Sharon testified at the sentencing phase of the trial about the time he attacked her. Well, she told Ranger Ray and Kenny Elliott some other stuff about her murderous kin. She recalled that when their grandmother had died in the early 80s, at the funeral, Earhart had taken Polaroids of her in the casket. At that time, he was living in his truck, he smelled awful, and he drank way too much. She said that he told her he once killed a girl in Colorado. He was gone for weeks at a time when no one knew where he was. And he was fixated on women's private parts, monthly cycles, and hysterectomies. He had tried to choke Sharon once out of the blue. He was a disturbed individual. Ray and Elliot also spoke to Earhart's ex-wife. They were married for less than two years, and the result of their union was the son, who eventually gave a DNA sample to investigators. When they got married in 1968, Earhart was working at Sam Houston State, but he was fired because he was drunk on the job. He got another job delivering boxes of chicken. He could not hold down a job because he had an alcohol problem, but he was never abusive, the ex-wife said. They divorced in 1970. Earhart's cousin Robert had the most illuminating things to say about Earhart. He was the person who was closest to Earhart during his life. His cousin, Robert said, had three sides to him, a loner, private, insecure person, a nice person, and a mean person. He recounted some horrible things that Earhart did to puppies when he was younger that I will not discuss and I wish I had not read. He also said Earhart would engage in bestiality with chickens, which I can't and won't try to explain. Like Sharon, Robert said that he recalled Earhart often camping and taking off for Colorado many times in the years 1974 to 1983. He also liked to break into buildings and steal cars. Most of his activities were sexually motivated. 
After his divorce and until the time he was arrested for killing Candy, Earhart lived with his mom, Ida May. And Robert said that their relationship was far from normal. He said he didn't believe it was a sexual relationship, but it involved a lot of sexual talk and behavior. In fact, the two shared a bedroom, although it had two separate mattresses. There was a lot of pornographic material in the bedroom, and Earhart on occasion talked about his mother's genitals. Okay, I'm done. Robert told investigators that Earhart was generally very angry toward women, and on the day he was put to death, Robert had been one of the last people to speak to his cousin. In fact, Earhart had requested to talk to Robert. Robert was eager to ask him if he had really killed Candy because Robert had girls of his own and was bothered if he had because Robert had advocated for him. When he straight up asked the condemned man if he had done it, Earhart responded, quote, Yeah, she was wiggling around and trying to get up, so I shot her in the head. And that is that. A reporter at the press conference held by Sheriff Kirk asked a logical question. Is Earhart responsible for any other murders? His response was that there were one or two unsolved cases in Bryan that were of interest. Now, there doesn't seem to be a pattern to Earhart's murders. Candy, killed in 1987, was a child. Ginger, killed in 1981, was an adult. Candy was shot. Ginger was not. But there is a third murder which Texas investigators believe is almost certainly attributable to Earhart. They don't have DNA to prove it, but ever since his arrest in the Candy Kirtland case, Bryan police have considered Earhart the prime suspect. This is the 1986 murder of 51-year-old grandmother Ruth Green. Ruth disappeared in the middle of her afternoon shift at the Butter Crust Bakery in Bryan in February of that year. Nothing was stolen, and Ruth's car remained in the lot. Her nearly nude body was found a week later, partially clothed and dumped in the Sam Houston National Forest. Vultures drew some local fishermen to the gruesome scene. Ruth had been shot in the head and stabbed several times. The pathologist believed she had been alive for almost all of the week she was missing. Sound familiar? Yes, Ruth Green was abducted, murdered, and dumped in the same manner as Candy Kirtland. In fact, the spot where Earhart was apprehended sleeping in his car was just 50 yards from where Ruth was found a year earlier. Lieutenant Choya Walling of the Bryan PD told the Eagle, quote, That was when we really started looking at him for the Green case. The closeness of those two occurrences, the fact that he would choose that place, it's more than just a coincidence. That had to be a place that he felt comfortable or felt drawn to. Even more compelling, Earhart lived mere blocks from the bakery where Ruth worked, and Bryan police found several newspaper clips about Ruth's murder in Earhart's house. However, they also found other newspaper clippings of solved crimes that were attributed to other criminals. The Eagle reported that sperm cells were detected in a vaginal swab taken at Ruth's autopsy. Unfortunately, recent testing of these slides found the DNA too degraded to be useful. And Earhart refused to discuss the Ruth Green case with investigators even from death row, likely because he hoped for a successful appeal until the end. He told an investigator in the last few days before his execution, quote, I'm not talking about that. For what it's worth, both Kenny Elliott and Josh Ray told me that they believe 100% that Earhart murdered Ruth Green, making him a triple murderer, at least. Careful listeners will note that Earhart's two cousins, Sharon and Robert, both mentioned that Earhart seemed to spend a decent amount of time in Colorado. Sharon said he even told her he killed a girl there. Robert said that Earhart told him he liked the hunt there, but he wasn't talking about animals. It seems to me there may be some unsolved murders in Colorado that could be attributed to James Otto Earhart. As for Ginger's murder, Earhart, in my opinion, is a surprising candidate for her case. 
He certainly does not seem the type to engineer a plot to phone a realtor to a showing on a pretense in order to kill her. His other known and suspected murders, assuming he killed Ruth Green, seem much more spur of the moment. Both Candy and Ruth seem likely to have been observed by Earhart before he actually struck. But since we know that Ginger was not his specific target, it doesn't seem likely that he set his sights on her in a similar fashion. Unfortunately, we will likely never know. But Josh Ray told me that while Earhart was weird and a loner, he was not stupid. He could have come up with the idea to get some easy prey out in the middle of nowhere by calling the one business where lone women would arrange to meet men a real estate office. Whether or not he intended to sexually assault her, or even did so and it just went undetected, we will never know. One thing that made me sit up in my seat as I perused the Texas DPS reports on this case was how close it came to being solved nearly two decades ago. As I discussed, investigators cast a wide net in this case, looking at similar crimes, violent offenders in the area, and so on. Well, Ranger Malinek documented in November of 2001, he and Kenny Elliott met with District Attorney Bill Turner and, quote, discussed the possibility of securing DNA specimens from Brazos County serial killer James Otto Earhart to compare it with DNA under the fingernails of Virginia Freeman to determine if Earhart might have murdered Freeman. This is fascinating because it means that as far back as 2001, investigators considered Earhart a serial killer for his involvement in the Ruth Green case, which has still never been proven, and were interested in him as a potential suspect in Ginger's case. Kenny Elliott told me that at that time, 2001, there was no definitive proof that Earhart had killed Ruth Green. Therefore, he was not considered a serial killer, and therefore the DA did not feel he had probable cause to exhume Earhart at that time to extract DNA. If he had, the case would have been solved in 2001. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual, because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamins. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Okay, now I'm going to play my interview with Cece Moore. What she has to say about how the forensic genealogy worked is fascinating. I hope you enjoy it. Hello. Hi, is this Cece? Uh, yes. Hi, Hi, Jessica. How are you? Oh, it's been a crazy morning, but I'm good. How are you? I'm so happy to finally speak to you after many months of Facebooking and emailing, etc. <laughs> yeah, me too. I had the idea for this podcast. It, um, during COVID, and I thought, wow, I can't believe no one's done a podcast about these forensic genealogy solves because I'm so interested in the backstory behind, okay. you know, the cases and why they went unsolved for so long. 
Um, and, and this came along and it happens that obviously our, our worlds collide because that's what you're doing. So, um, again, I'm delighted to be able to talk to you and, um, I, I'm thrilled that you can talk about Virginia's case or Ginger, I guess, as she was really known because the Texas Rangers really didn't have much for me on the genealogy there. Um, yeah, it was early in in investigative genetic genealogy that, you know, it was harder to, educate them. I always try. We do briefings and I have a, a long uh, report for each case. But I can understand how they didn't fully understand how I got to where I got so they could explain it to you. So I like the cases like this one, Virginia Freeman's, where the guy's dead and we know he was a real bad guy. And there's, you know, so it's, it's kind of, there's a lot to sink your teeth into. I agree. And I'm surprised it hasn't been covered much. That's why when I heard you were doing it. I was excited because this case is really interesting. Yes. And it just did not get a lot of attention. Yeah. I mean, he was a really strange guy, um, just based on what the Texas Rangers reports and the interviews with him. Oh, man. I mean, um, so, all right. Do you want to walk me through this somehow without visuals? (laughs) This was one of the very early cases that I was asked to perform investigative genetic genealogy on. So it was in the very first batch. Paravon had existing relationships with some of the law enforcement agencies because they had created snapshot phenotype images and predictions on these cases. That means we already have had the crime scene DNA phenotyped. And so all we needed to do was create a file that was uploadable to GEDmatch and then get permission from the agency to upload that see what kind of matches we had. Right. And there were about 100 cases that had already been SNP genotyped by Parabon. So when I joined forces with them May 1st, 2018, there were a lot of cases just waiting for me to dig my teeth into. And I think 99 out of 100 gave us permission to do the upload to GEDmatch and do an assessment on the viability for genetic genealogy research. Okay. So uh, this case was very promising right off the bat. I give an assessment scale between a 1 and a 5, and we will recommend genetic genealogy for anything between a 1 and a 4. 5 means that it's not likely viable to leak the actionable information because we just don't have enough data, meaning the matches are way too different. And in this particular case, I was really excited. Uh, I gave it a three, which at the time was very promising. Today I might give it a three plus or so. Um, But what that meant is we had matches at approximately the second cousin level. And I'm looking for matches in general above 70 centimorgans to be the foundational match. I also use much more distant matches, but I'm hoping for a match around the third cousin level. So 70 centimorgans is about a third cousin. Now, it's going to vary in different population groups, so that's not always a good benchmark, but that's kind of our general benchmark. So we have five matches above 70 centimorgans. Okay, great. potentially promising, and then we had one over 300 centimorgans, which we get very excited about. Right, Because sure. that 
as long as there's no adoption, misattributed paternities in either the tree of the subject or the tree of the match, then that, you know, is almost a slam dunk. I mean, it's not always. I've certainly had cases with even much better matches um, that got hung up because of adoptions. But in this one, I had two matches that were about second cousin level, and they shared DNA with each other. And so I knew I should be able to identify a common ancestor between them. Okay. And then I had a handful of supporting matches as well. And then, of course, thousands of more distant matches. And I was really excited to see the matches because I felt like it was very likely I would be able to come to at least a you know preliminary theory on the identity of of Ginger's killer. Okay. And what happened? All right. So yeah. So um, Sheriff Kirk made a statement at the press conference something about. Uh, he, the grandparent, great grandparents of the top two matches had six children and five survived or something. Did I understand that right? Yeah, that's correct. So, um, let's see. Our top match was 314 centimorgans and also shared some X DNA. So X chromosome DNA is really important especially when you're working with a male suspect, because we know that it has to connect on his mother's side, since males only inherit an X chromosome from their mother. And so the match was a female. We didn't know right off the bat if it came from her mother or father's side, since she gets an X chromosome from each parent. But it does narrow down the possibilities of how they're connected. It rules out the father's father's line. Okay. So I knew I needed to look at her great-grandparents, and, and I could eliminate the father's father's line because she only gets her paternal grandmother's ex-DNA, not her paternal grandfather's ex-DNA. Got it. And the next closest match was 239 centimorgans, and they shared about enough DNA with each other to be second cousins. So... I knew that if I built both their trees, I should find common great-grandparents. And that is exactly what happened. Uh, that told me that our suspect very likely also descended from those great-grandparents, but from through a different child than the matches, right? Because if he descended through one of their grandparents, he would share even more DNA. Right. So that meant I needed to look at the remaining children. This couple had six children, five of whom lived to adulthood, but we could rule out the grandparents of the top two matches. So that took it down to only three likely grandparents for our suspect. Now, I mean, this case is just optimal. You know, you rarely get matches this good and plentiful, especially since the database changed to allowing us only to use about a third of it, those that are actively opted in for law enforcement. Right. So you still see some cases like this with the Jane and John Doe cases, since we can compare against the whole GEDMAPS database and now also have family tree DNA. But it's pretty rare with a suspect case to have these types of matches. So I want to make clear that uh, they're not all this straightforward. Right. <laughs> um. 
there was a complication, and that was that all of our top matches were related to that same genetic network. So the next two matches descended from the parents of those great-grandparents. So uh, one of them descended from the great-grandfather's line, and one, or let me say that again, Um, the next two matches descended from uh, each side of that genetic network, meaning uh, one of the next matches descended from the great-grandfather's grandparents, and the other next match descended from the great-grandmother's grandparents. Okay. And so that told us it really had to be through that marriage. I was seeing independent matches to both sides of their family trees. But that meant I didn't have any strong matches to triangulate with, meaning help narrow it down further by looking at the spouses of those remaining children. Okay, so that means you you basically have a very pointed, focused investigation, but you still have to narrow it down by time and location, et cetera. Yes, that's exactly right. So when I have this rich of data, typically I will be able to connect to the suspect's mother's side and father's side, and sometimes three or four of the grandparents' lines. And that's when I usually will be able to uh, formulate a high-confidence potential identification. And when I only have one line represented, I don't usually feel as confident about my hypothesis because, of course, there's usually other people in that tree who also fit in the right position to be that DNA contributor. Right. Okay. So we, we have, we've narrowed it down to, we, we've got this, this one line and the, the the children help you narrow it down to, we know that the killer is a male and he has to be alive and in this area of Texas in the 1980, early 80s. So I have that the, that the father's name was Thomas Earhart and the mother's name was Ida Mae Sprayberry. Um, how did you end up with them? Well, what happens is I started building out the descendancy tree for those remaining three uh, children of the genetic network common ancestors. And pretty quickly, I ran into James Otto Earhart, and I saw he had a mugshot. And so I pulled up that mugshot and articles that explained what that was all about, and I found out that One, he lived in the area, and two, he had been convicted of murdering a child only about nine miles from the crime scene where Ginger was murdered. Right. So this was a case where the genetic genealogy did not point to only one individual or one possible individual, which many of my cases I am able to narrow it down to just one person or a set of siblings. This was not that type of case. But the circumstantial evidence was so compelling that I zeroed in on James Otto Earhart pretty quickly. Okay. Yeah. And I, 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 we were confused as to whether he had a brother. I thought that I saw that he did have a brother. But um, when I talked to my contact at the Texas Rangers, he didn't remember that. Do you happen to know? Um, first of all, I wanted to mention that Ida's name was Ida Hayes. Earhart. Okay, so her Sprayberry was a remarried name. I think so. Let uh, yeah. me pull I have Hayes as well. I assumed it was a middle name, but that makes sense. He did have a brother, 
But the brother died in 1974. Got it. Okay. That is so that was a rule out. And then he only had a sister. There's a newspaper called The Eagle. Oh, yeah. I have it. Yeah. yeah. They had done such great coverage on James Otto Earhart's trial and conviction. And they had mentioned that she could be a person of interest in the local murders of Ruth Green and Alice Martin. Yeah. But they did not mention Ginger Freeman. So that was interesting. Right. The other thing I had to check on was because I was so new working with law enforcement, I couldn't imagine that they wouldn't have had Earhart's DNA in CODIS because he was executed in, in 1999. Yep. And I thought by then they would have been collecting DNA from death row inmates. And so I needed to hear that from them as well was, no, he's not in CODIS because if he was in CODIS, obviously it had to be one of his cousins, not right. him. So yeah. that threw me a little. The other thing I looked at is we had the snapshot phenotype image prediction, and I should say we had the snapshot phenotype image and prediction, and Paragon had predicted that he had green eyes and dark brown or black hair, and I was able to find a description of James Otto Earhart, and he was described as having green eyes and dark hair. And I could also find you know, some pictures of him that that seemed to be consistent with the traits that the snapshot phenotype had predicted. Yeah. So there was a lot of things that were pointing in his direction, but the one hesitation for me was that CODIS profile. Why is he not in CODIS? Right. I and he refused to give a sample. He, uh, he And back then, they didn't have laws on the books that they w- could be f- literally forced to the way they are now. So for 11 yeah. years on death row, he would not cooperate, and they did not take a sample from him. You know, it seemed pretty clear, because there was a number of things, too, that helped to narrow this down. So even though there was three additional children for me to look at, uh, one of them their line basically ended as far as the X chromosome pattern. Okay. So one of the sisters, um, it couldn't descend from her because there was nobody who fit with the X chromosome inheritance. So that then narrowed it down to two. So there were three remaining children for me to research, two sisters and a brother. But the brother only had one son, and so the X chromosome wouldn't have been passed forward. Right. So I could eliminate his line. So that left it to only two sisters. And so it had to be a grandson of one of these sisters. So although there were other people who fit in the treaty in the right position, it, it was pretty narrowed down by that point. And he, I mean, James Otto Earhart obviously jumped out. And then the fact that he was committing known murders only nine miles from where Ginger was killed, to me it just seemed like a very strong hypothesis that he was the DNA contributor and the suspect. Uh, It's interesting with investigative genetic genealogy, we've been identifying a lot of previously unknown serial killers. And so although he was a known murderer, he was not known to be a serial killer. But I think, you know, now that we know that he killed a child and an older woman, you know, certainly opened the door for additional victims. So if you looked at these two crimes, you wouldn't have necessarily thought the same person committed them. Totally different victim profiles, totally different crime scene situations. But the fact that he set Ginger up for this by, you know, planning this whole thing, right. calling the real 
Bainey had cash asking to be met out at this rural property, you know, he was clearly looking for victims. And so I think it's pretty clear that he was a serial killer and there could be even more additional victims out there that have not been identified. And there could be no DNA. That's the scary part because Ginger Freeman, they don't, he didn't, they don't have any evidence that he actually raped her. So if he didn't leave that DNA behind, we'll never know, which is the sad part of the, it's the only limitations of forensic genealogy. Right. And maybe not everyone fought as hard as Ginger apparently did. Right. I mean, we were only able to identify her killer because she fought. Yeah. It was under her fingernails. Okay. Well, I don't want to take any more of your time. I just want the point made that uh, this was more straightforward than most and certainly than what we're dealing with today, having only about a third of the database available to us at JetMatch. And I wish they were all this clear cut. <laughs> They're not. <laughs> uh, so this was a good early one. This yeah. gave me a nice start. I had some really sort of fun genetic genealogy cases early on. I rarely get them anymore, unfortunately, where everything just sort of po- comes together so nicely and points at, you know, one very likely individual. It happens, but it usually takes a lot more work than this one. So this was done in 10 hours or less. Well, that's incredible. Wow. Yeah, after all those years. And I didn't have to put in extra time behind the scenes on this one, which I do on a lot of my cases today. They may pay for 15 hours, but they're often getting much, much more than that because it's hard for us to just walk away. We don't ever want a case not to be solved because of finances or funding. Just let us know what you're covering, and I'll let you know if it's something that can be discussed or not. Perfect. All right, Cece. Well, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so, so much. This is wonderful. And I'd love to chat with you again anytime you can squeeze me in. So as we just heard, Cece's very early stage work on this case was able to bring about a resolution for the Freeman family. After the announcement that Ginger's killer had been identified, Ginger's grown children said in a statement that they were grateful to Kirk, Investigator Kenny Elliott, the Brazos County Sheriff's Department, and others involved in the case. We hope that this brings some closure to all who were affected by this crime, their statement said. After 37 years, Virginia Freeman's case is closed, thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you are one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Thanks to Texas Ranger Josh Ray and former Brazos County Investigator Kenny Elliott for speaking with me about this case. And of course, a very special thank you to Cece Moore for agreeing to walk me and my listeners through the forensic genealogy. Don't forget, if you're interested in becoming a regular supporter of the show, you can join Patreon to become a DNA ID patron and receive episodes ad-free. Just go to patreon.com and search for DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit customizedgirl.com slash S slash DNA ID podcast. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime. Welcome aboard. Let me entertain you with crazy travel stories, true crime stories, and survival stories from all over the world. I've covered insane asylum murders, being buried alive, a crazy trip to Kinky Cottage, as well as being trapped under 100 feet of water for 60 hours. I can't forget to mention plots for financial gain, serial killers, and so much more. Please listen to Twisted Travel and True Crime on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. To contact the show, please email the podcast at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com. 
Follow us on social media at DNA ID Podcast on Instagram, at DNA ID Podcast on Twitter, and at DNA ID Podcast on Facebook. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime and Missing Persons.